Welcome to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Stock market, wealth, personal finance, value stocks. Invest in your life. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Money Tree Investing Podcast. I'm Joe Salcihai, one of your four hosts here on the show, and I'm in the driver's seat today. They let me out. And so I'm really excited for you to hear this interview. Today, I'm interviewing one of my co-hosts on the show, actually, Andrew Sather. He's the brains behind e-investing for beginners. And if you know anything about Andrew, you know that he is quite a value investor. And today, he's going to talk about some problems that you can keep out of your portfolio. He has developed a value trap indicator. And I'm going to interview him about this because it's it's really interesting. You know how many times you'll look at a stock and you'll think that the stock price is really low and it looks juicy and you're thinking about buying in? Mm, sometimes that's a big trap. And Andrew's going to explain how to avoid the value trap. Uh, so really excited for you to hear this interview. And of course, Hang around with us because as soon as we're done with the interview, we'll have our roundtable uh, talking more about the interview. So here we go. Andrew Sather and I talking value investing traps. We have a guest coming on for this week's show that I'm sure that you have never heard before. It's uh, the one and only Andrew Sather from eInvesting for Beginners. Are you familiar with this thing, Andrew, the Money Tree Investing Podcast? Have you heard of us? I don't know. I'm not really quite sure, but uh, <laughs> happy to be on regardless. You know. Well, I'm so excited about your new ebook, Value Trap Indicator. What made you decide to write the book? You know, it's actually something that my audience has been asking for. I do mention it in one of my free ebooks that I give away. That I had this idea for a value trap indicator, but I never took the time to actually do all the work and write it out until I finally buckled down and got enough requests from people that. Yes, this is something they want to see. And basically what the value trap indicator is, a system that I formulated that took what I did is I looked at all the biggest bankruptcies of the last 21st century. And I wanted to see, is there anything that is similar in all these cases? Because if we can figure out why a company goes bankrupt, then we can figure out how to avoid that and it would really help investing returns. And so come to find out, yeah, there is a couple of similarities and these bankruptcies really aren't as surprising as the media makes them out to be. So in other words, there's a big difference between finding value and finding something that looks like value, but really is just going to be a quick way to lose money. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the whole thing on Wall Street is you want to buy low, sell high. The sell high is a completely topic on its own, but buy low sounds really easy. But when you're buying low, what happens is you're also getting a lot of companies that are down on their luck. They're being looked down on by the market. It's There's a lot of pessimism involved. And so some of that pessimism is overblown and some of it's actually is actually because the company might be not in a great shape. So you have to be able to decipher is this company, is this buy low opportunity something that is a great opportunity for myself because the market doesn't know what they're looking at? Or is it a company that is running into trouble and the business might be deteriorating? Once you can walk that fine line, then you can really maximize your gains in the market. It's funny because when you talk about companies that are innovative and have great products, it's so difficult to buy those companies on sale. And you have a whole chapter here about problems you have with growth investing. What is your problem with growth investing? (laughs) You know, a lot of growth investors don't like, might not like that chapter. Um, (laughs) 
So the thing that I have is, you know, with value and with growth, the concept behind value is that you're going to buy companies that are out of favor. So that's buy low. The concept behind growth is, have you heard of the greater fool theory? Yes. Yeah. So it's like, you see this a lot of times during late parts of bull markets where people don't care how much they pay for earnings or they don't care how much, what kind of valuations they're paying on companies because there always seems to be a greater fool. So you saw this with the internet stocks during the dot com boom. There's a greater fool. If you buy a stock, even though it's overpriced, it seems to just keep going higher and higher. And so you can always sell to a greater fool. And so this is kind of one aspect of growth investing that I really have a problem with. Because as you know, the greater fool theory always runs its course and then you run into a market crash and the greater fool theory ends. And the people who are stuck holding the stock, those are the ones that are going to get hurt really badly. And so what I did in the chapter is... I took five different scenarios because a lot of the growth investing, you look at the kind of charts that go from the bottom left hand part of the screen to the upper right hand. So you see like a nice, right. a nice linear graph. And you'll see this a lot when people are talking about stocks and investing. Oh, here's a great example of a stock. Look, it just went straight up. All you have to do is buy at the bottom and you'll be fine, right? So I took five different charts of companies back in the past where this was the case where they had a nice trend line up. And I said, okay, would you buy here? Would you buy here? Would you buy here? Would you buy here? And so with each case, it was a completely random set. So in one case, it would have been great to sell because the stock just crashed afterwards. In another case, the stock just kept doubling and then dividends increased. So the point of all those graphs was that I was trying to make is that you really don't know and the past doesn't perfectly tell you what the future is going to be. And so because you don't know what's going to happen, these perfectly straight lines that you see with growth investing don't really tell you anything. And so I say that the one thing you can control is how much you pay. And so if you're consistently paying a lower price for a stock, you'll do much better than trying to time the greater fool and basically timing the market. So you don't use relative strength very much like a growth investor would? No, I mean, I'm looking at earnings growth and I average that out over three years. So just by definition of trying to maximize for growth, I do have a growth component. So there will be some relative strength in there just by definition. But as far as actually using those technical indicators, I stay away from those. You also talk about, I want to touch on this just a little bit too, before we get into the, into actually what you do. At the beginning of the book, you also talk about problems with IPOs, problems with mutual funds. You go into those. Let's talk about IPOs first. What's the issue with jumping into an IPO? Like I talked about in the book, IPOs really stand for one thing. It just serves one purpose and that's to get the owners of the company, the people who founded it, put their blood, sweat and tears into the company and it's to get them paid. The owners and the founders who have been with the company for decades, these guys are the ones who spent their whole lifetimes building these startups. And so, you know, if you look at the situation where they're giving up all the power and the control of a company and just releasing it to the public. If you think somebody who spent their whole life and their life's dream on investing into one company, if you think that they're not selling out at a price that's favorable to them, well then, you know, I don't know what to tell you. But you can be sure that when they're selling at an IPO, it's for a good reason and because they're making a ton of money on that sale. And so the people who get duped are the ones who are buying into these IPOs. There's plenty of cases where if you want to invest in a company, 
and you see them as a top company in the next 10, 20, 30, whatever it may be, you can wait a couple of years for some real financial data to come out before even jumping into the IPOs. There's no sense in jumping into an IPO where there's no data, no reliable data, audited data that you can refer to and knowing the fact that they're going to sell at as high a valuation they can in order to make as much profit for the owners. Yeah, you're almost buying because of the song and dance than based on any data whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then mutual funds. Early in the book, you talk about mutual funds and some issues with mutual funds as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we've mentioned a little bit on the show before about mutual funds and Miranda and Andrea are really big on the index funds. And a big reason why mutual funds don't work is strictly because they are expensive. They have fees that an index fund don't have because you have to pay for the management to move your stuff around. And uh, a lot of studies have actually shown that many of these mutual fund managers actually underperform the market and you would just have been better buying an S&P index. What I argue is I think a big reason for that is that because these mutual fund managers are living and breathing the markets, you know, they're in there every single day. They get bombarded with so much information and they're so in tune with what's going on on, on Wall Street that it's actually detrimental to their performance. A lot of successful investing depends on the fact that you buy something either unfavored or favored and you're able to hold through different times. Some of the biggest returns won't happen unless you're able to hold through a rocky period. And so I think because these mutual fund managers are so involved in Wall Street, they really don't have the kind of returns you'd hope for. Take the example of someone like Warren Buffett. He's so far removed. He's all the way in Nebraska. And yet he was one of the greatest investors that we've ever seen. And I think a big reason is because he's so disconnected from Wall Street. So I kind of argue that, you know, I have the same type of disconnection. You know, I'm all the way out in California. That's <laughs> thousands of miles away from Wall Street. I don't have to worry about all the noise and everything that's going on. And also another thing about these mutual funds too is that there's a lot of psychological research about how as the further you get removed away from your money, the easier it is to spend it. So like the reason why gift cards work so well in retail stores is because when you swipe it, you feel like you're not losing any money. Right, pretend. But yeah, the feeling of losing, you know, we can feel cash, you know, we can feel greenbacks, we can feel that. That hurts when you take that away. When you have a credit card or a gift card, it's just swipe, it's easy and you don't feel it. So these mutual fund managers, by the same token, they don't look at the money that you've earned and you've slaved away for 25 years and you have saved in this little portfolio. They don't look at it the same way you do. So to them, it's just numbers on the screen. And really, they're looking at themselves and how can I get myself promoted? How can I get on this fast track in my career? Some of the best ways to do that might be to take a lot of risk with other people's money. And so I see that as another big problem with mutual funds. The interest is is complete conflict and there's no parallel with what's good for you and what's good for him. It's funny you say that because it seems like people try to buffer themselves from risk, but you really make a point in the book that you want the risk to seem really real, especially when you go into some of these bankruptcies. And I want to get into the heart of the things that you talk about around risk. Your 11th chapter is academics don't know risk, and you especially take to task beta and about how advisors love beta. And for people out there that don't know beta, could you explain what beta is and then talk about how beta can lead you down the wrong road like you talk about beta beta led investors and BP down the wrong road. Yeah, so beta basically measures 
uh, market volatility. So if you have basically it's relative to what the total market is doing. So if you have a beta of one, that means that a stock that you're looking at has about the same volatility as the market. Which seems, by the way, on its face to be something you definitely want to know, right? Is okay, if this thing has a beta of 1.2, and it's not exactly this, but that means that it's 20% riskier. And if I'm an investor, I want to know that thing. Yeah. So the problem is, a lot of advisors look at beta as investing risk. Right, you know? right. We've mentioned on the four, we've had discussions on our podcast about volatility and how you know you don't care about volatility unless you're already retired. So already right there, there's this huge disconnect between how an advisor might be measuring risk and how what risk means to you personally. To me, I make this example in the book where what makes bungee jumping so risky is it the fact that you're jumping up violently up and down and kind of getting dizzy just from going up and down super fast? Is that the risky part? No. The risky part is that you might lose your life just in case if the cord snaps. So in investing, I feel like it's the same way. Risk is not how much is my investment you know, going up and down, what kind of volatility are we seeing? It's really how much money am I losing and what are the chances of that money going away? And so that's why with the value trap indicator, I really try to focus on how can we make sure your money doesn't get lost and how can we stay away from the worst case scenarios? And you focus then instead of on something like beta on debt. It's funny. I love a single sentence that you have in here, which is that the riskiest companies aren't the ones that are the most volatile. They're the ones with the most debt. Yeah. Thank you for that reference. It makes me feel good to hear my own words coming out of your mouth. But for sure, I mean, we look at some of the biggest bankruptcies that we've seen. And if you look in the media and if you turn on the TV, everyone likes to focus on the fact, oh my gosh, this this company had billions or trillions of dollars in assets. It was such a big company. It was a home house name. How could this company have gone bust? These journalists and people who are covering the stock, they don't know the simplest financial analysis, the fact that you can go to a balance sheet, you can look at how much total liabilities they have, how much total assets they have. You can see that a company like Lehman Brothers was 29 times more leveraged than an average company. You can see things like MF Global was 30 to 40 times more leveraged than an average company. You can see just countless examples of these companies where they have they're just levered to the hilt and really until you know these things can go on for a very long time where companies have a lot of debt as relation to their equity but it does catch up to them in the end and with companies now that are highly levered i mean they may have had five ten years of being able to survive but what happens when interest rates go up what happens when the market goes into a panic what happens when another run happens on various banks these are things that are like a house of cards and over time, they will collapse. And so what you can do for yourself is you can learn about the debt to equity ratio. And I break it down and try to give it in the most simplest explanation. It's basically just a relation of how much value a company has and how much debt they have. So if you can avoid the companies that have more debt than value, then you're really doing some great things for your money in the sense that you can hold on to these companies for a very long time and not have to worry about them going bankrupt in case the market crashes tomorrow. And you could then go over seven categories to determine your value trap indicator. Let's talk about the seven categories, if you don't mind. It's a whole formula. How did you come up with these seven categories? Yeah. So the way I kind of looked at, you know, I'm a value investor at heart. And so 
I follow the gurus like Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett, all those guys. The only problem I saw with a lot of the value investing is these experts like to dive right into the numbers. You get these crazy formulas and valuations, but you know what you're really doing is you're just maximizing these little ratios. And I feel like trying to find an overperformance just based on these little ratios, tweaking them here and there, making your own like cute little names for these metrics. <laughs> Everyone's doing that. The problem is, is not the fact that how can I maximize for this ratio? Any one single ratio can really find you a lot of winners, but will also find you a lot of losers. What nobody's talking about is let's look at the whole picture. Let's look at all three financial statements. There's three financial statements that every company is required to file by the SEC. And those three financial statements are there for a reason. So if you look at income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement, the income statements like the short-term health, balance sheets like the long-term health, cash flow can predict what's going to happen in the next one to two years. If you have ratios in every single one of these three financial statements, then you can know that you're covered no matter what happens to these companies. And so like a lot of came from just studying these bankruptcies and realizing that, wow, you know, a company like Lehman Brothers had a perfectly astounding income statement. Like you're talking about, I believe feels Lehman Brothers or Circuit City had dividend growth. You know, you have the dividend growth investing. They had consistent dividend payments that increased every year. They had EPS numbers and earnings numbers that were increasing every year. Top line growth, bottom line growth, everything looks really great. And then looking at six out of the seven categories with Lehman Brothers, you would have thought that you had a perfect value play. But then it was the debt to equity that that just this one stubborn category that really flagged high that ended up doing the company in. And so that's why I really focus on this idea that you have to look at every single valuation that's a potential out there. You need to look at every possible thing. And you know it's not possible to look at every single number on the financial statement that would take you forever. I was able to narrow it down to the seven most commonly you know, characteristics that might have led to bankruptcy and we're able to cover our bases with these seven categories. So knowing that, then if any one category doesn't look good, we stay away from that company. And that really keeps us away from a lot of value traps and a lot of companies that might go bankrupt. It's fun. You start off with price to book as your first indicator and then move on to your second category is the price to sales ratio. And then the third category is... We got... PE, price to earnings. And then fourth one is price to cash. The fifth one's the debt to equity. Uh, That's a big one. Sixth one is earnings growth. Remember I said how we have a component of earnings growth into the formula. And the seventh one is the dividends. So dividend yield and payout ratio. How much, if the payout ratio is too high, you don't want a company like that either. If, If they're paying out more dividends than they're actually making then that's not a situation you want to be in. So every single category has a reason why it's in there. The price to book and the price to sales. If you look at Jane O'Shaughnessy's research when he did with what works on Wall Street, he looked at every single single ratio and he saw that those two were the top two if you bought the 50 stocks with the lowest ratios of PB and then separately by itself PS. Those two single valuations would have outperformed more than any other valuation. And you see a lot of parallel with a lot of other value investors who confirm that. You have Benjamin Graham, and he was a big proponent of the price to book ratio. He was someone who made that one a lot more popular. 
So those two ratios are really like the core of the equation. Those two have the most say on, on what a number does. So the way the equation works, there's these seven categories. If each category gets assigned a number based on what the ratio is at that time, and if the number is less than 250, 250 or less, then you have a situation where a stock is a strong buy. And then if it's 800 or higher, you have a situation where it's a strong sell. And so what these numbers do for you as an investor is it completely takes the emotions out of it. You take away the objective and you take away the subjective. You take away the possibility of you may be falling in love with a company or really liking that brand or whatever it may be, these measures that don't really mean anything. And you strictly look at it from a numbers perspective. And that's really the best way to get higher returns. I haven't run the numbers on this, Andrew, but I would think just looking at the seven ratios, this would lead me away from a company like Amazon.com, where there's just so much debt in that company that, you know, that price goes down slightly. You can see it turn much like some of these bankruptcies happen just overnight. Oh, yeah. I mean, I haven't run the numbers either, but I bet that the value chart indicator on that is streaming <laughs> right. a, a strong sell. Like, right. just stay away from Amazon, stay away from Tesla, stay away from Netflix. All these companies are just crazy valuations, very high debt levels. And I'd be worried if I was investing in these. I love how you take these then. And then, as we mentioned, then you tell everybody how these seven categories work. Well, you start off by building the need to protect yourself and to take less risk. And then the seven categories. And now we lay the seven categories over these bankruptcies. You go through Enron, WorldCom, Nortel, Lehman Brothers, one of the Circuit City, mm-hmm. the Tribune. There was a, it's funny, I keep stuttering because there it is, Washington Mutual. I couldn't come up with the name. Let's take one of them. Which one of these did you find particularly fascinating to go through and lay these seven categories over them and show it kind of a textbook case of where, where people got it wrong? A lot of them are jumping out in my head right now. It's kind of interesting to hear the backstory on some of these bankruptcies because hindsight's twenty twenty, and so we can look back at how these bankruptcies happened. And you know, all we remember is what the media tells us is what happened. So, like for Blockbuster was a big one that I knew. I remember when it happened. I was a lot younger, and a lot of the kids my age had already moved on away from Blockbuster, and they had jumped onto the Netflix and the Redbox. And I was even doing that myself. I was already on Netflix before. Before it really became mainstream. And uh, as I talk about in the book, it's not something where you need to be ahead of the trends and you need to understand the market pulses. What you'll see when you look at a lot of these bankruptcies is that the numbers tell the whole story. So a company like Blockbuster had negative earnings for four, five, six years in a row. I mean, this company was just bleeding cash and it was in the red for a long period of time. I mean, looking at the numbers now, it surprises me that they even lasted as long as they did. <laughs> so if there's a company, there's actually, you would think, okay, well, that's Blockbuster. Obviously, it's it's obvious, you know, Netflix took over. It's not obvious until you see the company go bankrupt. These trends and these things that happen where new technology replaces old technology, they could last for a lot longer than you'd think. And so what I argue in the book is that these companies that are late on the trends or they're experiencing lower customer demand, these companies that are really in trouble with their business models, they are showing you with their financials that this is the situation that's happening. So if you're able to decipher these numbers and understand that things like negative earnings and high debt to equity are two of the biggest indicators of a bankruptcy, if you can understand these things, you can understand that 
uh, a bankruptcy like Blockbuster actually wasn't surprising at all. And you didn't have to know anything other than the fact that their numbers were terrible. Just like you're saying earlier with uh, Warren Buffett, you know, staying away from a lot of the Wall Street stuff, staying away from the commentators and just trusting trusting the numbers because the numbers don't lie. Uh, the hardest part about that is that no one really explains the numbers. Like there's this assumed sense in a lot of these books that you pick up that you should know what all these names are, what's the jargon on this, what right. all these ratios. And so I took it from the perspective of somebody who doesn't have an accounting background, somebody who doesn't have this type of knowledge that's supposed to be already had. And I just broke it down in the simplest, most easiest way I could. And so that's why a lot of these bankruptcies we go through and it's very story-based. And I just try to break it down and make it as easy as possible to understand. Well, it's funny to think that a book can be very educational, Andrew, and fun at the same time. But but I thought it was fun how you apply these things that, I don't know, a lot of them I live through. And some of them, it seemed like, you know, they came out of the blue. Some of these bankruptcies seem to come out of the blue. And I love how you take these numbers and just apply the numbers and say, look, it didn't come out of the blue at all. How do we get the book? Yeah, you can go on valuetrapindicator.com. I have access to the book there. I'm not releasing it to Amazon or anything like that. So really, if you want to get the book, you got to go to the website, uh, valuetrapindicator.com. Insiders only. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) And what's next for you, by the way? So now that the new book is finished and you're talking about the new book, I hate to say this with the book just coming out, but what's the next project going to be, Andrew? Oh man, you know what? The first project I'm looking at is I'm definitely going to Vegas. I'm going to blow some money and, and just let loose because this thing, oh my goodness, this week has just been outrageous. And then depending on how the book does, maybe you can help fund me to go to the Bahamas or maybe uh, go somewhere in Mexico where I can just relax, get away from Wall Street. And then coming back, obviously, you know, I'm going to be on the podcast still and I'm having a lot of fun doing that. And then we'll see what happens after that. All right, let's roll into the second half of this party. We have our round table with us today. We obviously have Andrew Sather from E-Investing for Beginners back with us. And we have from Planting Money Seeds, Miranda Marquit, and the all fired up from Taking a Smart Step, Andrea Trevelyan. Welcome, guys. Ladies. Woo. Woohoo. All right. So uh, we're recording this at a very special time uh, that we made just for Andrea. That's kind of an inside joke, but we'll just leave it there. Uh, uh, Let's talk value investing, shall we? Andrew talks about protecting your portfolio from the value trap. You know, and so that means putting downside protection on your portfolio. Andrea, I'm going to start with you. What, What type of downside protection do you put on your portfolio? Actually, not per se. <laughs> the, what I do basically is I analyze my stocks. I know what's going on every time they have an earnings report. I go back, I reassess what I want to do. Um, so I guess my downside protection is I actually pay attention. You know, my goal is always to invest in a company that I'm willing to hold for five years. So I think that extra time that I put into researching is kind of my downside, you know, coverage. So that's downside protection like Andrew talked about in the book and earlier in the show about knowing the numbers? Yes, absolutely. You if you don't know the numbers, you're just you're guessing. Miranda, how about you? What's your downside protection in your portfolio? Do you have to ask? <laughs> it's indexing, right? That's, that's, Yours is diversification. That's the answer to everything is indexing. Um, yeah, so I index. So that's 
pretty much what I've got for protection. I do have some dividend aristocrats that I have as part of my dividend portfolio. And I have a couple uh, silly things that uh, for our our little competition that we're doing, uh, Joe, that we're in. And uh, yeah, and that's turned out to be not very much downside protection at all. (laughs) So really, it's indexing. It's almost like going without a net, isn't it? It kind of of feels like that as the market deteriorates. Uh, uh, Does anybody anybody use... uh, Andrew, I, I didn't ask you this on the interview portion, so I'll just ask you now. Do you use stop losses also when you buy? Yeah, I do. I do the trailing stop. What's nice about that is that it lets your winners ride and it cuts your losers short. So what you do is you it basically puts a floor on your stock and then as it rises, that floor rises with the stock price. And then if the stock ever crashes, then you're you're protected. So I have like all these protections in place. Probably one of the most risk averse investors out there that <laughs> you would find. And I mean, for my age, it doesn't really make sense, but I really ascribe to the idea that if you're losing money. That's the hardest way to compound money. So I try to minimize that as much as possible. Interesting. Andrea, do you use, have you used stop losses at all? Actually, I don't. Never have. Never have. No. Um, and I don't because, you know, I figure if the market crashes and it's coming back up, I really truly pick companies that I'm willing to own. And for me, that means they're typically coming back up with the market. Got it. Would you, let me ask, let me move on to the next question, which is Andrew clearly is what we would call a value investor. I know that's shocking for everyone, but, <laughs> but, but for your other two, how'd you figure that one out? <laughs> no, I, I, I hate to reveal that too quickly on anybody, but the, but for the, the other two of you panelists, are you, do you see yourself as more of a growth investor or a value investor? Miranda, we'll start with you. Well, if you're going to pigeonhole me, it's probably going to be value investor. Uh, just, just because I don't know. I mean, I, I can't really call myself a growth investor because I'm not going, I'm not chasing particular growth. But on the other hand, I am heavily invested in stocks because I index and that's sort of the growth portfolio plan for the long term. And, but, from another perspective, I guess I could be. Well, I don't. I don't know if I'd call myself a value investor. There we. There we go. It's it's clear as mud now. I, I don't like labels. Don't label me. <laughs> I, I I think it's hard because because you yeah, kind seriously of, when you're an indexer like I am, you can't really say value versus growth. But it's a healthy balance of both, I would think. Yeah, it really yeah. kind of is like this middle way. But I was going to ask if if your portfolio, I mean, there's indexes that are growth indexes, indexes that are value indexes. You don't buy the growth portion or the value portion. You just buy the S&P 500? Yeah, pretty much. So I've got, because I'm lazy, I've got Betterment handling it for me. And so basically I've got, their, they've got a large cap in there. They've got a small cap. They've got a global and then they've got some, bond, you know, a very small portion uh, is the bonds. So, yeah, really, it's just kind of a mix, and it's basically just designed to move with the market and grow over time and yeah. provide me with retirement in 20, 30 years. Andrea, how about you? Can we put a label on you, value or growth? It depends on which bucket we're talking about. I'll, we'll call me a tweener. <laughs> um, 
I, so I know we've talked before about like my bucket. So I have my index and I actually buy a total market index. So I don't have to mess with different indexes. There it is. It's covering growth, value, everything. Um, but dividend investing is definitely anything but growth or value. It's about the company being stable and consistently paying. Um, but then in my fund bucket, I'm definitely much more growth, but I always love to get any of my companies at a slightly discounted price. That is so funny because because with my indexes and you know uh, mutual funds in Cheryl's 401k things like that I'm very much a growth investor where I'm protected with diversification but 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 in in my playpen where I buy my individual stocks I am very very much with individual stocks a value investor I can't I can't buy any of the high flyers for a lot of the same reasons that Andrew talked about I love I love how you said that your growth stuff is in your wife's portfolio. Right. So when it goes down, it was her fault. <laughs> Makes me laugh. Right. <laughs> well, she is a 401k. When you're self-employed, you don't have a 401k. So what do you do? You right? could right. have a solo 401k. It's well, true. You could well, in my, it, well, no. Okay. In my simple also, I mean, I have those. Uh, um, in my retirement plan and in her 401k, <laughs> what I meant by her 401k was mutual funds because I don't have any mutual funds. I have all ETFs uh, in my retirement plan. But in the playpen, it's it's all value stocks or stocks that I tried to buy on sale. So let's move on to question three here. Even though Andrew explains very well this, this very easy math you need to do to screen for the value trap, how many people do you think listening to the show are actually going to do it? Andrea? Not many. How come? <laughs> Takes too much work. That's, and, and I think that's the the... You know, if you're going to put a label on what's the problem with personal finance and investing and everybody's money is nobody really wants to sit down and do the work. I feel the same way. And isn't that frustrating? Mm-hmm. I mean, Andrew presents it. The math is, is incredibly easy to do. And it's these nine screens, each one that, 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 that complete, you know, helps protect you. And yet, uh, even as we were doing the interview, I thought there's a bunch of people who just are not going to do this. They're going to nod their head and they're going to do absolutely nothing. Well, there's a lot. Most people want to take the hot tip that they got at the water cooler and they're happy with that because then they can say, Oh, yeah, I'm in with Enron too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's how it works most of the time. But Andrew, the hot stock tip, that's a fine place to start. Just run it through your screens, right? Yeah. I mean, you could, you could definitely. Uh, uh, one of the things I offer is the spreadsheet with all the calculations in there. So you don't even have to do any of the calculations yourself. If you can just input the numbers from the financials, it, it takes all of maybe 10 minutes and you can do it for each company. Uh, that will just that alone with that automation, I think. If you're inclined to do it, you, you know, I, I try to make it as easy as possible. Yeah. Miranda, do you think people are going to do it? Uh, probably not. I, I think if, if I were to invest in individual stocks, I would, I would probably do it because I think Andrew does break it down and he makes it easy. But I know that my weakness is that I'm lazy and I don't want to mess with it. Like Andrea pointed out. So I, I default to the index funds, but I think there are a lot of people like Andrea says who are like, Oh, well, I just want this hot stock tip. I want somebody to just tell me, you know, what, what's going to be the next big thing. 
and they don't want to go through and do the research themselves. And I don't want to do the research myself. And that's why I index. Right. Uh, but if I was going to do the research myself, then I definitely think that Andrew's tool would be something I would personally use because I'm the sort of person who, if I am going to go ahead and do that, do like the individual investing, then I'm, I'm going to think about it and I'm going to put in the, the thought and the work that goes with it. Thank you, Miranda. Well, 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 and that's what I was going to ask you, Andrew. How do you feel hearing all three of us say, we, we think that people will pick up the book. We definitely think that, but we don't think people are going to use it, even though we all agree that, that these are great screens. Uh, it, I mean, obviously, it's frustrating being someone very passionate about it. Uh, the only thing I would say in, I guess, rebuttal to that is just there's this thing called the resistance that Seth Godin talks about and it usually pops up every single time there's something that you should really be doing. So I remember when I was back in college, every time that I had to study for a test or a final, the dishes that were piling up on the sink seemed to be more important at that time. So there's this procrastination and you can always feel the resistance and it's going to attack you right where something that's most important to you is at that time. So if you can battle that resistance i think there's a lot of rewards for you yeah i i I totally agree i love that analogy my fourth question is this some studies have shown that small investors actually can beat the market and and a lot of these people that don't beat the market that are mutual fund investors the reason they don't beat the market is because they're trying to move so much money in and out of the market like you talk to many of these men and women they're very very skilled investors it just it you know when you've got 2.5 billion dollars that you're trying to put into a stock you can't do it all in one day so uh if you agree with that that a small investor can pay attention to systems and and do the math uh if you're going to invest in individual stocks do you see yourself being that type of person that would use a system andrea do you use a system when you invest i don't necessarily call it a formal system but i do have a process and I, I and I guess I look at systems and I'm like, you know, you run it through formulas and everything. Whereas I really believe in kind of looking at the numbers, calculating what I'm willing to spend. But I really like buying based on company potential and stuff. So I have a process. It's not a mathematical system. So it's not like an algorithm that you're using. Right. Yep. And and I do think the small investor can beat the market if they do have a process, they're paying attention, they're focusing. It's it's not something that you can buy something and then not look at it again for three months. Yeah, it seems like there's a commitment that comes along with it, right? That you have to continually run it through the washer to see if how it's holding up. Yes, yeah. Uh, uh, Miranda, I'm not going to ask you about being an individual stock investor, <laughs> but, but, but do you use the system around your investing habit? Yeah, I've got a system. It's called automatically invest in index funds. And so it's incredibly systematic. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Uh, every, every month I have money automatically taken from my checking account and put into index funds. Take it's, all your money and hand it over to Betterment. The that's end. right. It's an amazing system. It's a great system. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, uh, so, so, but yeah, like Andrea, I would probably go with a process. I wouldn't necessarily use an algorithm, but I think having a strategy, having a plan, for what you're going to do 
understanding what you're trying to accomplish with your investing is a big part of that so that you can choose a process or a strategy that that works with what you're trying to do. Andrew, we talked earlier about about obviously the system for not falling for the value trap, but do you have a system on how you identify companies that you're going to invest in? I do. Um, obviously, I run it through the, the the indicator that I have with my Excel spreadsheet. But before even doing that, um, I've talked about on the podcast before how I like to use the stock screeners. So you can use one called finviz.com. And so I have this screen, which... It's a very strict screen, which I use every month, but I loosen the parameters depending on what I'm looking at. So I'm not, you know, you can't buy the same stock 12 times in a row, even though it might show up on your screen. But I use the same screen and then kind of work within that screen. From there, I can have a list of maybe eight, 10 companies. And then that way, you know, I don't have to do calculations on all. 6,000 companies that are out there. I have a small list. I can run the calculations and then from there make an informed decision. This is That was before I was on the show because I haven't heard of Finviz. Do you start off by feeding it uh, stocks into and then save you know, different stocks that you want to look at or does it start off with the entire US stock market or how does that work? It's the So you, it actually spans throughout all the international stocks too. Well, not all of them, but a lot of the major ones. And so it gives you a list of all of them and then it has valuation ranges for every different metric. And you can just use the little drop-down tool to sort. And then it will sort and eliminate the companies that aren't within that range. And so as you do different valuations, you'll get a smaller and smaller list. And it's a completely free tool. And it's, it's really a great place to get started. That, that was my next question. If there's a cost and the cost is just your time. I like yeah. that one. Yeah. Uh, my last question, everybody. The value trap is all about covering up weaknesses and potential problems in your portfolio. So I want to end this with the train wreck question because I love train wreck stories. Miranda, yes. what's your biggest weakness as an investor? Is it chocolate? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Now, my, big, my biggest weakness is probably that I am such a one-note investor. I should probably do something else sometimes. Andrea? Definitely emotions. So, and meaning, you know, I am an active trader in a section of my portfolio. And so when I set a target price range, if it starts to get to one of those boundaries, my brain's like, well, maybe I was wrong. What did I do wrong? What? What? You know, so it's controlling those emotions. And the way that I actually do that is... I write down, when I evaluate a stock, I write my bottom level, my top level for buy and sell. And then I also write why I want to own it and why I'm buying it today. So that when I hit those emotions, I can go back to that and go, okay, does everything still stand? Great. Go to bed. Leave it alone. If not, sell. That's interesting. The uh, uh, Andrew? <laughs> okay, so my... One of the phrases that my wife is probably sick of hearing is that this month's stock pick is the best one I've ever had. (laughs) I tend to say that every time with every newsletter I release. Uh, So I really get caught up. That's that's why I'm so focused on this value stuff and the the downside risk because even someone like me gets super excited about what I'm looking at. And so, you know, if you have these things in place, then you're allowed to get excited. 
Mine is being uneven. I find that there are times when I dedicate way, way, way too much time. And then other times that I don't pay attention until, you know, my reminder comes up that it's, it's the end of the quarter and it's time for me to look at my stuff. So, um, uh, just, I wish I were more even about, about, uh, my decision making because I seem to make a bunch of decisions all at one time. And it's kind of scary when you're making decisions just based on the fact that I had an extra hour today, you know, <laughs> <laughs> nothing to do with anything else. You're like cramming for. For the final exam. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> it. Right. I, I'm on the podcast tonight and I got to make sure that I know something. Right. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that was fantastic. Uh, we will see everybody again here uh, next week and, and we'll have the show notes at, uh, at moneytreepodcast.com. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Visit us at MoneyTreePodcast.com for more free investing resources. Yep. Let's yes. let's do this. Here we go. <coughs> Andrew's Andrew's smoking. <laughs> Great, he's smoking, I'm drinking. We're good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>